Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, a podcast in which I, your host, Mark DeCano, talk comedy with comedy circuit regulars from door to seat to stage to find out what they think about comedy. Together, we laugh, we learn, we cry. Although no one has cried yet. Mostly it's the learning bit. I love talking to comedians about comedy, and if you like listening to what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, review, rate and share the podcast. My guest this episode is another veteran of the comedy circuit who won Laughing Horse New Act in 2006 and Chortle Newcomer Award in 2007, also winning Lester Mercury Comedian of the Year that same year. He's a veteran podcaster, a seasoned TV panellist and an excellent stand-up comedian, Carl Donnelly. Uh, hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah, good, how are you doing? Very well, thank you so much for joining me, I appreciate it. No worries. How's Glasgow? It's nice, yeah, it's fun actually. I mean, it's a wicked city, it's one of my favourite cities, I think, yeah. in the UK. So tell me then, um, how did comedy enter your life? What are your earliest recollections? Um, I think I always loved comedy, but I don't think mm. I ever really distinguished between stand-up and other comedy you know what I mean I was always just like into comedy like you yeah. know growing, I remember growing up and watching like a lot of Dave Allen with my parents oh, I love Dave Allen because you know, my parents were Irish so like it, that was oh. like he was just on the telly I grew up just thinking he was the funny man <laughs> who sat in a chair and told funny stories and then there'd be funny <laughs> sketches and you know it's quite I mean looking back now actually you think that show was pretty unique wasn't it that was essentially yeah. stand up and sketch yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and it was brilliant. You don't really get much of... Like, people have tried to, I think, do versions of that in the modern era, and it's not really been done yeah. well enough, I don't think. But yeah, so I used to watch things like Dave Allen. I used to love Freddie Starr. I remember fighting. He was one of my favourites when I was a kid. <laughs> Just like the sort of madness of it. And the, yeah. The, yeah, he was so in the moment, wasn't he? For sure. And then... Yeah. Um, and then I started... I reckon when I was about... Like in my... You know, nine or ten was the first time I saw like a... You know, Eddie Murphy, Delirious. I was like, oof, you're so naughty and funny. <laughs> and then from that, I probably saw some like Richard Pryor and things. But mm. again, it was never like, I never thought of it as something I had anything other than like, I just liked watching it and having a laugh. And yeah. I got really into, like, I really loved uh, um, Lee and Herring when I was in my teens. I used to go and watch them record their TV shows. Mm-hmm. And things like I watched like loads of sketch stuff like Big Train and you know and yeah. you know your brass eyes and your day to day. So I'd always had a lot of comedy interests, mm. and um, but never really separated it as like that's the one I like the most. I just had sort of got into all of it, and yeah, I did. I probably got into it enough to have quite a good understanding of it. You know, I wasn't just into yeah. just those like the sort of big mainstream ones. I got I went a bit more off piste and liked <laughs> everything really. What about live comedy? Where did that come for you? I'd never... I, I mean, the first live comedy I would have seen would have been probably a Lee and Herring sort of recording sure. of a TV show. Or like, yeah. I remember I went to watch Shooting Stars being recorded. Oh. And, yeah, so yeah, I'd, see, I'd sort of... You know, I loved Reeves and Mortimer. That, you know, mm. right from like Rick's Big Night Out, sort of right right through every incarnation of them and mm. all the little offshoots like Catterick and all that, you know, and then yeah. individually, it's, you know, they're so funny. But like... I'd say, yeah, they were the first people I ever went to see, I reckon, would have been one of those two, yeah. like, TV recordings when I was, like, 14 or something. Yeah. And then, yeah, live stand-up, actually. I never saw live stand-up until I was probably 21, I think. And that was... Because I'd never had really... I didn't really know it was a thing. I'd seen... You'd see people on telly, like, yeah. in a bit, you know, your Eddie Izzards or something, and I didn't realise that was something that just happens every night of the week throughout the country, and there's... 
thousands of unknown comedians and so it wasn't yeah. until like yeah probably i reckon it would have been about 2003 my ex wife we'd just started seeing each other and she was really into comedy she'd been to edinburgh mm. and stuff and i'd never even heard of edinburgh <laughs> and uh and then she took me to a comedy show and mm. it was like the first time i'd ever seen live stand-up and it that was like the you know i know it sounds silly but it was like an epiphany of <laughs> you know what i mean it's almost you know it's a bit in back to the future when what's it called chuck berry's cousin here was his mind oh, yeah. fly playing guitar <laughs> he's like you need to hear this like, that was me watching comedy i was i was like saying to people like, oh my god have you seen like being to the banana cabaret man it's like like live comedy and like, i was like yeah i'll be now it's pretty fun isn't it and, like, and i was talking about it like i just witnessed some secret fight club or something <laughs> that you know i couldn't be i couldn't be more excited about so i started going to the banana cabaret all mm. the time because i lived out i live really nearby Hmm. and yeah that sort of just happened over the course of the next probably i'd say year or two i was yeah. watching loads of comedy and i had this i fell in love with stand-up so hard like I just i could i just loved watching and i loved seeing all the comedians you'd never see on telly and you'd never hear yeah. about this was before the comedy boom on yeah. telly this was before your live at the apollos and mock the weeks and all that stuff that none of that existed there wasn't really hardly any stand-up on telly so yeah. every single comedian I saw, it was the first time I'd seen them or heard of them. So even like people like Michael McIntyre and play, people that then blew up within the next year or two, mm. I saw them when they were just the, like the kings of the comedy circuit and they just were absolutely tearing rooms apart left, right and centre. So I got to, <laughs> I probably got to see club comedy at its finest. You know I mean, that was like the period before club comedy became TV comedy. Yeah. And all them people that were like the big dogs suddenly were all over BBC and all over panel shows like I saw them just before and it just yeah. coincided with when I got interested in comedy so I, was, I feel quite lucky that I saw yeah. all of them when they just hit their peak right right and what about comedy as a career for you what influenced that how did you make your start there well actually it's my, my my ex-wife again she's pretty much yeah the the I was going to say she's responsible but that sounds like I hold it against her uh, but she <laughs> in that she got me into comedy and uh, so I'm thankful that she did. But she also, as a, just she signed me up to like a workshop. She she always mm. used to say to me because we'd start going to comedy all the, all the time together, and she'd often say to me that she thought I should maybe give it a go. Yeah, and I was I was always like, Are "You mad?" Because like, I mean, I did always write little things, even though I was totally I had no relationship with comedy as a as a career, even as an idea of a career. Like <laughs> me and my mates just used to make silly sketches and write stuff, and my mate had a video camera. And we'd always just be around this flat, just running around the car park, pretending, like, making silly... <laughs> we used to make, like, really over-the-top fake action films yeah. with, like, characters with, like, tinfoil on their head being robots <laughs> and stuff. And we did that from, like, you know, mid-teens onwards, really. So I was always writing funny ideas, but I'd never really had an outlet. Mm. And it was then my ex-wife, she said, you should try stand-up. And yeah. she, I suppose she would just spend a lot of time with me. And I think when we'd be watching something, I'd always be just being silly and saying dumb things and... I think she had a better probably instinct for, than I did. You know, I'd never done yeah. any performance or like I'd never I hated like reading out loud at school. I was very shy. So, yeah, she just signed me up to this workshop where it was like a 10-week stand-up workshop at the City Lit in London. Right. And I didn't actually go to all of them in the end. I sort of I got I had a bit of a weird stomach problem at the time. Mm. And um but I went to a bunch of them. Yeah. Didn't really like it a lot of the time. I actually weirdly found myself in a quite arrogant way thinking, <laughs> like, 
none of these people are particularly funny. Not in a rude way, but I mean, like, right. you know, I don't know. It felt, I, there was quite a few actors who wanted to do stand-up. And, like, there was people that, yeah. I don't know, a lot of people thought they knew what they were doing, but no one did. Whereas I felt like I was one of the few that went in totally blank and was like, look, I don't even know if I want to ever do stand-up. Yeah. This is just, I'm just sort of basically got signed up on this by my girlfriend. <laughs> and then as as the weeks went on, I just re- I've, I found it e- quite easy to write. Like this week, we got to write three minutes of stand up and do it in front of the class. And I found yeah. writing that three minutes really e- not easy. It's the wrong, wrong word, but I found it quite. Uh, I did it quite naturally. I wrote right. it, and once I started doing it, I found that I I could sort of word it quite well and make it funny on stage. And mm-hmm. yeah, so over the course of the thing, I actually found it like it. That was the thing that made me go, oh, maybe I could do this. Yeah, and then the moment I did that first gig at the end of it, we did like a showcase. That was just it. It was game on from there because I loved it so much. Like I never, you know, I was so nervous. But the moment I got on stage, it just sort of the nerves went, and I just loved it. I was like, oh my god, I feel like this is where I've always meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> How was what was the response like at the showcase at the end? Died. No, no. I, <laughs> I actually, um, I actually had a really good gig, which is again. But it's all in context, you know, having a good gig at a very, very new act over my gig is different to having yeah. a good gig at a comedy store, do you know what I mean? So you were the least bad, is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon I definitely was in the top uh, one. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. There, there, there was a few of them actually had some, were pretty funny. And that's, it's, I'm probably, yeah. you know, it's, I'm probably romanticising my own origin story and being like i was just the best one but you know there was some funny people on the course and there was a there was one or two that sort of gave it a little go afterwards most of them just never did it again Mm. um i I think it was me and one or two tried to then you know do it a bit longer and i was the only one that was doing it probably within about four or five months after that showcase Mm. yeah but I still didn't really understand how the circuit worked. So, like, you know, I was out doing one gig a month, one open spot, thinking, bloody hell, it's a bit busy, isn't it? One gig a month. Yeah. So I didn't realise you had to gig, like, all the time to get good. Yeah. So there I was. <laughs> I'd like, I'd meet, I remember meeting um, a very funny person called Anna Crilly. And yeah. um, she, we did, she, I did one of my first ever gigs with her, like my second or third gig. Mm. And we had a nice chat. And then I bumped into her a year later at another yeah. gig. And she, we were like, oh, it's great to see you. How are you doing? And then we were talking about like, and she was like, have you done many gigs? I was like, yeah, man, I've been like pretty, I've been really stuck with it. I've done like, you know, probably 12, 15 gigs. And she'd done like 150. And I remember being like, right, yeah, I've messed this up, haven't I? I didn't realise. And it was, that was the moment I was like, I need to commit to this. Hmm. And then I remember it was in, it's, that was just before Edinburgh 2005. And I went up to Edinburgh for two weeks on my own. Yeah. And just hit, like, I, just, I remember buddied up with a few other open spot mates I'd met and yeah. we just went around every little gig and just tried to get on every spot we could and like, mm. I think I did like 50 open spots in like a week or something in Edinburgh and it just started this ball rolling of me suddenly just gigging all the time and when yeah. I went back to London I just really hit the open mic circuit as hard as I could yeah I mean you mentioned there about um there's that you and a couple of others kept going I read a statistic somewhere that said that 60% of stand-ups bow out within three years what do you put longevity down because that was a while ago and you're still touring yeah I mean I've I, I'm surprised that it's 40% carry on to be honest I, think, I thought it'd be lower <laughs> you know what I mean it's quite a brutal existence especially in the early years it gets I mean mm. that's what people don't realize comedy gets easier and easier the more you do it the gig the gigs get better and better like 
it's mm. so much easier to it once you obviously once you've got the skills and the the ability to write some routines and things like yeah. you know it's so much easier to go out and have a great gig at the comedy store than it is in a room above a pub in front of eight people mm. four of which are the other acts you know i mean that sort of <laughs> <laughs> the open mic circuit is quite brutal, but you have to go through it to learn all them little skills. And it is a necessary skill to be able to play to a tough room as well. Yeah. Uh, but I think it is so brutal that a lot of people just can't deal with it, especially once you start traveling. Because like, you have to as well. You've got to, I don't know if you do so much now. I think it has the shift, circuit slightly shifted. But when yeah. I started out, you had to get out of London. Like Once you started getting more gigs in London, then you were like, right, I need to go and do... Manchester frog and bucket. I need to go to the stands. I need to mm-hmm. get to you know Liverpool, whatever. And you just and suddenly you're just you were on the road for no money because you were going to just prove yourself to hopefully get a paid spot. Yeah. And like they're there the that's the period where I think a lot of people go like the same for me. I've I've got a social life and yeah. You know, some people might it's like especially people that start a bit later when they've got families and things. You just can't. The guilt of it would make you give up. I think. Yeah. What do you think about um? gigs like that where you've got open mics or you've got like a bringer or those sorts of things it's all about establishing yourself and getting exposure but i mean you know you've got to travel all that way it costs time and money yeah i mean i I don't i mean i, I don't I've, luckily there was no bringer shows when i started i think that happened just after, like in a year, couple of years after i started out and i'd already sort of slightly moved off the open mic circuit it was into the, yeah. the proper paid circuit but mm. yeah i mean i'm dead I, I don't think i think that's yeah that's essentially it's like shark like promoters mm. abusing their position to get the acts to do the work for them but i also think you know that it is a tough sell isn't it as well so the gigs yeah. are gonna be a bit shit because if you've it's a hard like to advertise that again I, I never understood when i was new like who were these people coming to these gigs who was looking in timeout and going like, oh let's go see that show where there's 24 <laughs> brand new comedians who might all be crap yeah. you know so the gigs were always like you know they 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 reflected the fact that it, it was a miracle there was anyone there at all <laughs> so but i also do think that it's it is a you know that you, that's where you learn if you want to do it or not isn't it you've got to go through that tough period to be like yeah. i'm willing to go through this to get to the, the the other side which is hopefully it becoming a your profession and you get to get all the, to do all the good gigs and the fun gigs and the yeah. big gigs um you mentioned going to edinburgh you didn't do edinburgh this year What's the story there? I didn't, sadly. I um, basically, I went to Melbourne, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and did my show there. Yeah. And I did a new show. And then just before I went away, I was in the process of organising Edinburgh. And mm-hmm. it was all looking like it was on. And then I made the executive decision not to go due to having ill parents. Both ah. of them were quite ill. And um, when my, I was in Australia, my dad ended up in hospital and actually rallied and came out for a period. But then uh, I just realised it was too risky to be away while their health was in the situation it was. Mm. So instead, we decided to come out to London and move house to be near my parents. Mm. So, yeah, it was it was the best. It was a good decision because it all fell apart, basically, by late July. And yeah. um, so now it's sort of, yeah, it's quite an interesting, it's a horrible thing, but this is the way a comedian's brain works. Like, my dad passed away in, like, just mid to late July, and then my mum's health was really bad and she's had to go into care in August. And like, mm. it's been brutal. But already I'm like, but next year's Edinburgh show. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's that in, you get this horrible little back part of your brain that goes like, write that down. Even though it's really harrowing and horrible. Yeah. Get it in the notebook, mate. It might be jokes at some point. Yeah. 
Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, I lost my dad last year, so you know, I realise it's a difficult position to be in. But again, I'm forced to ask you, and you've mentioned it there. Is is there not always a moment where you think, ah, you know, a year from now, two years from now, I can get 20 minutes out of this? Yeah, it doesn't even have to be that long. I did um, instead of going to Edinburgh, I put a couple of nights in at the Soho Theatre, and um, and that was before obviously my dad passed away. Mm. So I put it in. It went on sale. And I put out when I when I put it out online that I'm doing Soho. I said like, look, I was meant to be doing Edinburgh. Parents are ill. I've decided just to not go, but do two nights at Soho. Hmm. And like, and then um, it my dad passed away like two weeks before the Soho shows. So I, yeah, I just couldn't help it. I ended up writing some stuff, and in the Soho show, I was talking about him the week he died for the first ten fifteen minutes of the show. So I don't even tend to wait a year. Like my, for me, <laughs> I'm very quick to talk about what's going on. Like yeah. the, when I, when I got went through a, a divorce, what was it? Well, I mean, not the divorce, but when the actual marriage broke down back mm-hmm. in 2013, I didn't. Ed- I was doing Edinburgh, and mm-hmm. me and my ex-wife broke up in July, uh, just before Edinburgh. And I'd written a whole show. I was going to do a show, and then we broke up, and my Edinburgh show ended up becoming mostly about the, the fact that my marriage had literally fallen apart just before the fringe yeah and I, I don't remember much about that show i feel like it was almost like a blur i was just i was so mentally deranged for that month like mm-hmm. and i was drinking loads i was on loads of drugs like i had this mad month of like <laughs> like, you know what i mean because i'd suddenly just come out of a, a relationship that had become untenable and we were really like weren't getting on and we wasn't it wasn't good we weren't good for each other and i think we were dragging each other down and ultimately the breakup was really harrowing and hard but i think that sense of at least it's done now and we can both yeah begin to reinvent ourselves so i yeah. think i had this weird like weight come off my shoulders and to for that weight to come off your shoulders and then go to the fringe which is like a fucking <laughs> holiday camp for comedians i went i went bananas for a month and somehow got nominated for that show for the main award yep which doesn't i don't understand because i genuinely don't remember that show at all like out of all my shows i've done i don't look back at that one and think that was the best one i did i think that was the one where i was going for a psychotic episode which probably was what made it quite exciting i imagine reviewers and judges saw what looked like a man like raw like yeah. in the moment talking about something that was so fresh and so big. So yeah, I, I'm quite, I do, te- it's, and I it's not, I'm not one of these people that's like comedy is therapy, man. <laughs> that's horse shit. But I just have, I just have that thing where I have to talk about what I, whatever I think is funny at that point. And it yeah. is, so I, I just talk about my stuff is all personal and autobiographical, even if it's a dumb, silly, observational bit. It's always framed in. This is actually something I've just done or has happened to me. Yeah. So I, I, if something big happens, I, I'm just I'm talking about it on stage within a week, really, even if it is a death or a <laughs> breakup. Well, I mean, that's interesting what you've touched on there, talk, talking about observational and stories from your life. I mean, I, I would describe you. Forgive me if I've got this wrong, but I would say if someone says, "Well, what's Cardinal in like?" I'd say he's a storyteller, but not a storyteller like. Um, say Mike Wozniak or Glenn Moore. So he's a storyteller, but he punctuates with observation. Yeah, is, is that fair I, to say? I think that's definitely what I do. I think that's, that's always been my instinct: is to I either have a story that I want to tell, and in it, when I write, when I actually start writing, I don't. I never write it long form. I'm not. Mm. It's not how I, I, I find, I'm. 
I find it much easier to tell a story naturally is how I tell it. But then as I start telling it on stage in the early phases, when I'm doing it at new material nights or previews, I, I start finding the places to put the funny observations in. Yeah. So I put observations almost in after the story. And sometimes I get an observation that I sort of build the story around. So mm. like at the minute, I've just got this, uh, like, I've basically got like a 12-minute, what is, it is a story, but it, it started as an observational bit based mm. around for the first time I used um, original source tea tree and mint shower gel. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, so that... The store just, just essentially it was an, it could have just been an observational bit. It's like, has anyone used this bloody shower gel that makes your bits cold? But actually, the story of me using it, I, I told, I thought, I'm going to tell it as the story of me using it, like the lead up and the aftermath. Yeah. And then, but ultimately, it's, a, it's an observational routine about that shower gel. But yeah. now it's like a 12 minute story that I've built around the observation. So, so I, there's no. Yeah. I do them different ways. Sometimes I start with the observation, sometimes I start with the story. But yeah, I think I'd never, I'd always, I find it weird just doing an observation. Like, have you ever noticed? That's not, I, don't, I don't know, that doesn't work for me. I much prefer framing it around real life and being like, yeah. this is something that I've just had happen. Yeah. I, yeah. I laughed quite a lot at that bit because I saw you do that bit. I think, oh, wow, when was it? I think it was, uh, it must have been only a couple of months. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you what it was. It was a split bill at the Half Moon with um, Heidi Regan. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was that a... would have probably been in the very early yeah. incarnations of that show, which yeah. really it brought out a remarkable sound from the audience. So saying, <laughs> That's the funniest. I genuinely think it's one of the only routines I've ever done where most of the audience know exactly where it's going. The whole, the whole thing with comedy is it's meant to be sort of sleight of hand, isn't it? They don't see the punchline <laughs> coming. But it's one of the routines where the moment I say the name of the shower gel, every single person in the room, well, not everyone, but like everyone who's used it knows exactly where it's going. It's because it's quite popular. <laughs> like it's, I, I actually think sometimes you have this when you do observational stuff. Yeah. When you do a bit and you can't believe like no one's done that as a big routine before. I'm sure there's comedians that have had an offhand reference to original source but the fact that no one's ever done it because I, I talk through loads of different flavors as well so I actually i mean it's i'm basically just like marketing <laughs> original source on stage for them for free but like <laughs> the story involves my trying all the different flavors and then get into that yeah. one but like it's one of them bits where i was like how come no one's ever i've never heard anyone talk about original source <laughs> on stage even though it's, it's been out for about five or six years and everyone i know's used it so sometimes you just you just happen to be the first person to really dive into a bit yeah where but then you sort of think it's, it's a miracle <laughs> have you um have you ever tried anything out on stage that just didn't get the response that you expected at all either positive oh, or negative 100 percent, like constantly like i mean there's so many times you, i mean you lose count but like yeah. when you do new material like it's almost a hundred percent of the time you'll if you go to a new material night with 10 minutes of new material yeah you'll have a couple of bits that you think in your head, you're like, that is absolute gold that is going to just straight, <laughs> almost straight off the the conveyor belt is just going to be hit the ground running and be really funny. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. And there's something, sometimes it just you need to tweak it. Sometimes you just realize, no, it's just not as funny an idea as I have thought in my head. And the flip <laughs> side is sometimes you do something that's so offhand and yeah. you think it's just going to be a throwaway bit. Yeah. And it just catches the room <laughs> off guard like i did um i did i did the comedy store last weekend mm. and obviously it was the weekend the queen passed away mm. and i was hosting on like the friday night and 
I, I know so it wasn't the Friday actually the hosting like uh, on the Saturday I was opening so I was yeah. on first and I just before I went on stage just thought up a f- silly lie that mm. was like referenced what was going on but was really dumb yeah and I said it to, to Lou Conran who was hosting I didn't say it exactly how, how I ended up saying it on stage but it was such a silly little idea that in my head I thought oh, I reckon that might get a little laugh and you know, it might be quite a little, like a little funny way to open, considering the circumstances. Yeah. And I said it, and it just, it just caught everyone so off guard. And I think I said it accidentally, really well, because I hadn't really <laughs> written it or anything. It was just a silly idea. Basically, yeah. the joke was, I walked on and said, like, you know, it's, I know it's a bit of a weird time, how everyone's sort of working out, you know, how they feel or how they're reacting to the Queen's passing. And I said, what I've actually been doing in the last three days is, um, I've just, oh no, it's two days at that point. I went, what I've been doing for the last two days is just killing swans. Like <laughs> and then I just sort of improvised this bit about chasing swans because no one's protecting them anymore. But the line <laughs> killing swans, just, I just saw it catch people so off guard. Because like, <laughs> like, they, they had no idea where that was going to, there was literally no like reference that they thought that was going to be how that sentence was going to end and in my head i genuinely just thought this is a silly idea i'll just chuck it out and see what happens yeah but like it just really got like it sort of rippled to a round of applause which that's you know for a new bit that you've just thought up three minutes ago yeah you are you would never have gone this is gonna fucking kill it whereas sometimes you'll write a bit that you'll slave over for an hour looking at it like how do i make the words perfect and then you you finally get it. You're like, this is magic. It's going to really yeah. take the roof off. And you say it, and you just get a load of people going. <laughs> but yeah, you never you can you can never tell. That's something that you can you learn as you go on a much better instinct as to what's funny and what works in your voice. Mm. But you never ever can actually tell how it's going to land once it touches an audience's ears. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, using specific references, and you mentioned um, doing Melbourne this year, so. Mm. I'm quite interested in the way different cultures perceive comedy and it might be specific references like, you know, they don't have pot noodle in America. Someone mentioned that you need to change it. How have you found gigging abroad compared to the UK? Um, I find I've found it quite nice. I mean, I love going to Australia. I've been going, I've I've been going to Australia long enough though, that I sort of know I've got enough understanding of them to be able to tailor my stuff. And I, I think I do write relatively broad. Like I don't think my stuff is too, I've got some routines I know just will never travel. Like I've got, a, you know, I've got a routine I'm currently doing about, you know, um, getting on the tube, and mm. it's, it's about basically about tube announcements and sort of. Right. I relate it to British customer services, so it, it's a story that can work throughout the UK. Yeah. But I wouldn't take. I wouldn't mention it overseas. So I just don't think. Why would I be talking about the London tube in like yeah. Melbourne? <laughs> but um, so yeah. But I think in terms of how they actually are and how they perceive comedy, like. It's different everywhere you go. Like when you go to like, and it's also sometimes you can equate it to the UK. Like if you go to say Australia, yeah, Melbourne are very Londony, right? But it's not all of London. Like you know, some of the bigger clubs in London are so um, there's so much energy in the room, like the store, like Top Secret, yeah. You know, like up the creek, there's clubs that just fizz with energy, and you know, you can just sort of once you. Once you get them, you can just sort of ride it into the end of your set. You don't, you know, it's it's, it's quite, it's, it's really exciting and fun. Some clubs, you know, are much more theatre-y and they're going to, you know, they're not going to blow the roof off laughing, but yeah. they'll really go with you with everything, everywhere you want to go. I think Melbourne are much like that. They're very, it's a very cultural city. Yeah. They're very comedy savvy. 
But yeah, they're not they're not the most raucous crowd you're ever going to have. Whereas if you go to Sydney, Sydney's a much more like it's like doing gigs in Glasgow or something where there's a real like, energy in the room. <laughs> yeah, like they're a bit yeah Sydney are a bit feral and they're really fun and the gigs are great. Whereas Melbourne, yeah, I think Melbourne you can probably get away with a bit more if you're doing an hour show of like you can really get into the. You know, I can I can stretch my legs a bit in this routine and not just have to hit a punchline every ten seconds. Yeah, like I think Melbourne also also Melbourne audiences say like are really earnest and sincere. Like they take things quite literally. Right. So I think a lot of comics from the UK because we're so self-deprecating in the UK. Yeah. Some comics are slightly caught off guard when they go to Melbourne, where they say something very self-deprecating. And the crowd sort of going, oh, as if like, are you okay? <laughs> Whereas we're used to British crowds, if you do a bit of something self-deprecating, they just laugh like, ha ha, yeah, you yeah. hate yourself as well. Like us. <laughs> no, a... So yeah, you just sometimes, you just... and it happens in America. I remember gigging in LA and like, they don't really have self-deprecation either. So mm. you've just got to do it in a slightly different way and let them know that this is a joke. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to kill myself at the end of the set. Like, I remember seeing James Acaster. Um, Acaster came out to Melbourne and did um, Cold Lasagna. I don't know if you ever saw that show. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, it's one of the best hours of stand-up I saw. And that was a short version of the show he did in Melbourne. Right. But um, it was it's a very personal show. Very, you know, it was about a very rough period of his life. It was the first time he sort of moved into that. You know, he's, mm. he's, he's, always, he's always done brilliant shows, but there's always a slight almost wall between him and the audience of like right. most of this is sort of made up for the for the, <laughs> for the purpose of the show yeah where it was the first time he really lent into like using all of his skill to actually talk about his personal life yeah and um but the, yeah the audience in melbourne like the first couple of nights he did the show just kept basically being concerned for him and like it almost <laughs> it's like they were stopping themselves laughing because they didn't want to laugh at his his life yeah. And he's had to keep berating them and saying, look, I wrote this as a comedy show. Mm-hmm. I've written this about this period. I'm fine. But now it's you are allowed to laugh at it because it is jokes. <laughs> and like the audience were just a bit too sort of like, oh, he seems like such a sad boy. That they couldn't get over themselves to laugh. And it took, it took him basically telling them, you can laugh before yeah. they did. Whereas I don't think British people need to be told. We just laugh at anyone. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You said you made a comment there about the Edinburgh Festival being like a, a big party, which I would agree with. But every other comedian I talked to about Edinburgh, when I was at Edinburgh, they go, oh, it's such hard work and it's it's hard really work. tough. I was like, yeah, but we were all out <laughs> drinking till five o'clock in the morning. So don't, where, where's the work? It's, I mean, any, any comedian who says Edinburgh is hard work, I reckon probably has never had a job. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I don't think, it, it, yes, it can be quite mentally... And physically draining, don't get me wrong, you know, because you're, you're yeah. doing your show every night and, you know, you might be doing some late shows, you might be doing some other spots in the day or some press stuff. Like, it's yeah. not just, you just don't just go to your show, um, but it's you're not, it's not work, is it? <laughs> you know what I mean? I had proper jobs before comedy, you know. My parents, like, I grew up in a council flat, my parents had shitty hard jobs. I watched them work hard yeah. for very little I think it's rude for comedians to talk about how hard work going to an open access arts festival is. You know I mean, it's not a prison camp. No, no one made you go. You've signed up to do every everything that is, you're doing. You've signed up to five months before. You know, you've had enough time to get yourself prepared. I think it's an absolute yes. It, it is. I don't know. I find it's like it's almost an excuse for the, like if 
it's not gone how they thought it would. Well, you know, it's really hard work. It's like, shut up. Yeah. Go and get a proper job then. I'd find, <laughs> <laughs> just find it frustrating. <laughs> Comedians talking about it like it's really hard. Even tough gigs, you know. I've, I've died at corporates. Yeah. And like properly died for 20 minutes in front of a room of people in suits that had no interest in watching me do comedy because they didn't know there was comedy on. They thought it was just their night of getting pissed mm. on their company credit card. And suddenly you've got to walk out and be like, hey guys, yeah. great to be here. And um, and it's horrible. It's a horrible <laughs> feeling to die at those gigs. But you get paid so well that that you, you end up sort of saying to yourself, oh, it's almost rude for me to be upset about it because yeah. you'd have got paid what most people wouldn't make in a month. Mm. you know to doing proper jobs and you've just gone on stage for 20 minutes and been ignored <laughs> so it's, not, <laughs> it's not that hard when you actually put it in context is it tell me about your podcast it's now tvi you do with julian dean yes how did that come about what were you thinking what were you thinking what was I, thinking? I mean to be honest, some days i do actually have that question <laughs> i um basically i used to do a podcast with comedian chris martin called the carl and chris podcast yes. which we did for years like we were mm. one of the first comedy podcasts in the uk like just after you know when i mean when podcasts weren't even really podcasts you know what i mean i remember it was the Ricky Gervais XFM show yeah. started getting released as a th- and it was called like they called it a podcast but with a podcast <laughs> and then quite quickly a few comedians started doing like um, Richard Herring started his yes and there was one or two more and then like and then me and Chris were like just let's do it man we just sit around the laptop and talk and we literally were talking sitting either side of our MacBook like hey Chris hey Cole <laughs> and uh, and we did it and. Um, yeah, people started liking it, and it's ended up doing all right. And obviously, then we sort of got proper mics and things like that. And we yeah. did that for years. And then I think it was twenty eighteen, maybe. Chris mm-hmm. decided to move to LA, and we were just right. like, "There's no point in us trying to maintain it over distance." Do you know what I mean, this was before Zoom. No one knew what yeah. Zoom was. I reckon now we could probably have carried it on to a certain degree, but I don't know if it, it'd be different, wouldn't it? Yeah. So we decided just to wind it up. Which is quite nice, actually, because most people just drag everything out forever. But it was quite nice to just put a, lit, like, a pin in it and be like, do you know what? We had a really fun time. We used to really love doing it together. Yeah. And um, uh, and then, but Julian had been on a bunch of times. I've known Julian for years. Like, we started out around the same time. He's so funny. Like, he's, mm. Julian's like one of the... He's so different to Chris as well in terms of as a, as a foil. Because, <laughs> like, me and Chris were just mates who have a very similar sense of humour... And yeah. we're both quite similar, chatty, hey, 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 like styles of comedy. Yeah. Julian is like a sniper. Do you know what I mean? He's, <laughs> he's a one-liner, like on stage. It's not, and they're not one-liners in like, you know, some of them are a bit longer, but they yeah. are very much, very well-written, set-up, punchline, really catch you off guard. And they're quite dark. And he's got mm. that natural instinct. He's one of the quickest people I know for like a, a dark aside and so anytime he'd come on the podcast it was really funny before when it was me and Chris and then yeah when um when Chris left I just Julian sort of stepped in for a little bit and we you know when Chris went out to LA for a bit Julian sat in for him and it just worked so me and Julian had such a yeah. laugh doing it that when Chris decided to actually move we just, yeah. I said to Julian should we just just start a new one just call it so we called it two vegan idiots and um, and then we just sort of cut it down to TVI just because it sounded a bit clunky, <laughs> and it's just carried on since. And it's really fun now. We, yeah, we do it every week, and it's built up a little patron community that's quite nice. And mm. we've got a WhatsApp group, uh, which is 
for a special a certain tier of our patrons <laughs> where they join a whatsapp they don't have to it's not force if they want to but yeah. we're all in a whatsapp group together and there's like 110 of us in this whatsapp group <laughs> and it's chaos <laughs> so, but it's quite nice it's, it's, we've created a nice little community of yeah, yeah we've got obviously you've got the normal listeners and then you've got this sort of little gang of patrons and then this even smaller gang of patrons that have like right let's go in this naughty little group where we talk about stuff and um yeah like it's really i mean it's one podcasting is one of them things where you know it's it's very easy if you just if you just want to do it like that you know so i mean it's great i love podcasts where people put a lot of effort in and there is like a real bit of production and they're doing their thing but most podcasts mm-hmm. i do still think are just people having a chat and i yeah. think that's it's really nice because I, th- I think that's why people like them because tv's all overproduced and when you watch comedy on like, tv it's all so overproduced that you know they have to strip it down to a certain amount of time and there's certain yeah. rules on what you can and can't say and everything's quite shiny and there's yeah. a divide between the you and them because they're on 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 stage somewhere else yeah. whereas with podcasting like people just hear you and their ears just talking naturally yeah and it's found it sounds much more intimate doesn't it so i yeah. don't really like watching stand-up specials because i find it quite hard to enjoy it because i'm i can feel the distance between me and them yeah i much prefer listening to them like i like it's sort of one of my favorites in the last probably what decade is um, norm mcdonald's oh, album yeah. me doing stand-up and mm. I'd, I'd never, I'd, wa- I'd never watch it. I listen to it. It's on iTunes, and every now and again, I just go back and listen to it. I'm just out and about while I'm walking, and it's so funny. And it's much nicer listening to it than it's watching it, unless yeah. you're in the room. I think. Yeah, no, I like that. You mentioned TV there. Uh, obviously, you've done TV. I know you've been on like uh, Mock the Week, and you did As Yet Untitled and other things as well. Yeah. I was going to ask you how that goes, but obviously, it's it's a very different thing to doing a podcast like you've we've already said, but also doing live comedy. Where do you feel most comfortable? Um, I mean, most comfortable is definitely just doing my just doing stand up as yourself right. on stage. Like, I mean, a podcast. I mean, doing a podcast is the, is the, the easiest because you're not even really having to try and be funny and get to punchlines and things. Yeah. But in terms of like when comedically, where I feel most comfortable is on mm. stage, just doing stand up. Like the yeah. closest TV thing I've done to just being relaxed and be feeling normal is that it's actually that alan davis show as yet untitled yeah. Yeah. i remember doing that. i think i don't know if i did it twice but it was literally just sitting around the table having a chat and a laugh yeah. and it is there's no like you're not getting anything in your ear from producers beforehand there's no like sort of they don't give you any strict rules yeah. they just sort of they basically get you all just to tee up a few things like have you got any have you got a nice story about travel or something and you say yeah but then no one knows what it is like right. so it is a real time chat but it's so rare because normally tv obviously by the nature of the fact that they are at the you know sort of they, they there's so many rules they have to adhere to tv producers mm. otherwise they're going to get in trouble yeah. that they then pass a lot of rules onto the comedians so but, but yeah, there's so many decisions made before that stand-up's actually doing it on telly that it's, yeah. it loses a few shades of its live feeling. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I've never. I mean, I've never. I've I've done stand-up on telly, like things on like on Dave and yeah, remember it's on Channel Four and stuff like. But you know, even even them and like they're not the big ones like Live at the Apollo. But even then, you just, you get to, you have to sort of clear every bit of material and yeah. So you just see it does feel a little bit like. Oh, it's not how I really like doing it, which is just free and easy. Yeah, yeah. So, 
TV work, podcasting, live stand-up. What is it that you haven't done yet that you feel like you, you still need to get? Um, I think acting's the one that I've recently started to um, mm-hmm. get. And that sounds like such a it sounds like the na- it's, a, it's such a natural wanky development, isn't it, yeah. for comedians? You know, to suddenly be like, I want to be an actor. But <laughs> I did, I did have done it. Like, I've done a few little sketch things in the past, but I've never like properly acted. Mm-hmm. And then I've um, I did a couple of short films recently, and I've done I, I've done some castings for like some TV comedy stuff and like. That was like proper acting. It wasn't sort of hammy comedy acting. It was actually just like a sort of comedy drama and, right. and some serious stuff as well. And I've suddenly, I've just got this little thing that's gone like, it almost feels like when I first started stand up, that little thing of like, oh, this feels exciting. Maybe I could learn how to do this. Because <laughs> it's a new skill, isn't it? And you don't, I'm not, yeah. with comedy, once you sort of learn the basics of it and you know that you're funny and you mm. get paid for it and, you know, you're always working to write a better, and you, you know, every routine you want to write, you want it to be the best routine yeah. ever yeah. but you you once you know you're funny you sort of tick that off right. and so like with acting it's one of the things where it's like oh, this is exciting because I don't know if I can do it yet the bits I've done I'm like I think I did that okay and I think I, I, I worked hard to make it as good as I could do it but it's yeah. still very I'm so so low down the ladder of skill at acting that it's something I'd like to sort of improve at and work at yeah so what's been the um the most important lesson that you've learned over your comedy career? Um, I mean, it's probably, and it's something that I luckily worked out quite early, mm. is just to not think about other comedians and what they're doing. You know, right. that's the, it's, it's such a weird one because comedy stand-up is such a solo sport. You know, it's very fun and sociable and that. And you, get loads, you make loads of mates and you're all in the same boat. Yeah. But it is ultimately you are a self-employed stand-up comedian who you know every gig you get is somebody else not getting a gig, isn't it? That's by the mm. nature of yeah. There's only there's only one of you can be on stage at any time, so you know it, it can I think make some people uber competitive, mm. and you know they just want everything, and anyone else getting something on telly is a slight on them and like why aren't I doing that and you know it does it really I mean I'd say that it affects most comedians would be my observation like but you know it's also a stupid way of thinking because most of the decisions are not based on you or not based on them it's like you know there's so many people in that decision so so a good example would be like the big tv shows like Live at Apollo yeah every year when they announce who's on it Mm-hmm. There's waves of comedians moaning in WhatsApp groups like, how the, how the fucking hell they got that? Why aren't I? <laughs> and often, like the answer is quite simple. You know what I mean? It's like, well, because that's because you know there's a thousand, two thousand comedians for them to pick from. Yeah, you know, it's, it wasn't between you and them. You know what <laughs> I mean? It was between them and seven hundred other people that might have been in the pool at this period of time. Yeah, and it also happens to be that. You know, they've just had a good Edinburgh. They've just gone viral doing a thing. So they're just in the mind of the producer. Yeah. So so many comedians just eat themselves up, like so concerned with other people that are doing things and why aren't they doing it? And ultimately, you just got to like not think about it and yeah. just do your stuff. And and also, you've got to, you've got to realize if you like most comedians start out wanting to be a professional stand-up comedian. So if you're a professional stand-up comedian, you've essentially you're living your dream life. Yeah, and everything else is a bonus. So then to moan about, oh, why aren't I doing that 
big telly thing that <laughs> one person in every 3,000 comedians gets. Like, yeah. it's, it's insanity, really, but it does drive you. It can drive you mad, but I've been luckily very... I don't know. I reckon I probably had that for a couple of years, early doors. Right. And then I just had a bit of a spiritual epiphany. And like, I mean, it is, I went through like, I got I got into Buddhism and all, started meditating and all that. And I just stopped caring about anything. It actually was, I mean, sort of almost sometimes I think I went too far. Like, you know, I don't read anything about comedy. I don't mm-hmm. read, I've not read a review of myself in a decade i don't read anyone else's reviews some comedians read like other comedians reviews during the fringe they're on short all trying to find out who's got a good or bad review and it's like you lost your fucking mind <laughs> i just like i just let it all be all that is not for me i just like doing gigs and watching other funny people and yeah. just that's once you simplify it it's very it's a lovely existence yeah. i think when you add all that on is when it becomes quite stressful and difficult i guarantee all the people that moan about how hard edinburgh is are the people that are reading other people's reviews that would be a a safe bet i reckon (laughs) (laughs) um so you still you you go out and you watch other comedians or or do you is it stand up you watch or just like a broad church event i I mean i go out and watch everything i like i love theater and i love Mm -hmm. stand up but i'm i'm when you when you gig a lot and i do i do gig a lot i'm on these comedians is out gigging at least three times a week Mm-hmm. You know, you do watch a lot of comedy. I do like to watch as well. I'm not one of these comedians yeah. just rolls in just before they're set and goes on and then just, mm. just goes straight home. So, I mean, because I've got a two-year-old now, I do probably go home earlier than I would have before. But if right. I, a lot of if I'm doing clubs and I'm closing, or like you know, then I'll often get there early enough to watch the rest of the show or as much of the show as possible. Yeah. So yeah, I do. I still really love watching stand up. And yeah. especially comedians I haven't seen before. It's, it's nice seeing a bunch of new comedians come through that, like, you know, it's quite exciting to see the new crop and yeah. realise that it's sort of in safe hands. Yeah. And, yeah, so I do. I mean, but in terms of, like, I've, I don't really go out and watch, like, the big guns, you know, like when sort of Chappelle's in town or something, everyone's, like, buying mm. their tickets for the O2. That doesn't interest me at all. I've, like, I've never wanted to watch comedy at the O2 at all. I'd much rather... And to be honest, you can often just find them in small clubs. I did a gig with Dave Chappelle a couple of weeks ago. I was at Top Secret, and he yeah. just made a surprise appearance at the end. Yeah. So I got to watch him, not just not even for free. I got paid <laughs> to watch Dave Chappelle. <laughs> so you know that I think yeah, I've never been one to be like I want to go see Chris Rock when he's in town. I just because yeah. it's it's too big a theatre, and I would just rather just hopefully run into them in a in a gig yeah. and get to see him in a small environment for sure. Do you, when you're watching uh, other comedians, are you predetermining the punchline, or are you able to just relax and laugh? At, no, at I'm, I'm a, I'm a good audience member. Like I'm really, I'll, and also I'm very easy to make laugh. Like I, uh, <laughs> I, I know it sounds weird, but I, I will watch any old shit and laugh. Like, <laughs> and that's not, to, I mean, because I've, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very judgy of comedy. You know, mm. I don't think I am. I probably am if I'm chatting to a couple of mates and we're having a bit of a laugh. Right. in a whatsapp group or something but <laughs> on the whole like if i sit in a comedy if i'm doing a gig i'll sit like last night you know i watched the whole show just sitting in the back of the room just laughing the whole time you know yeah. no i'm not judging i'm not trying to work out what's going to happen next or mm. yeah i'm quite good at just parking the fact that i'm a comedian and just being an audience member for a bit and yeah. still really enjoying it yeah uh where can we find out where you're playing how can we find out about you um i 
I mean, I do tend to put gigs out on um, Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. My, my, I've realised uh, in the last couple of months, as my dad was passing away and my mum has got had to go into a home and I had a lot on, my mm-hmm. website expired. So <laughs> I do need to get that restarted. Turns out it was up, um, my domain name needed to be renewed. Not right. renewed, but I had to like pay the two yearly mm. renewal and uh, it had an old <laughs> card number. I've got a new card since, so it it didn't work. And I I literally had about 50,000 emails saying, like, it's about to expire. And I was just too busy (laughs) to do anything about it. So that is my website is normally where you can find my gigs. But currently, (laughs) nowhere is the answer to that question. You've just got to guess. I'd say, yeah, I I, I normally share stuff on Twitter and Instagram in a couple of weeks before the gigs. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I mean, most of the time I'm in and around London. I'm always at Top Secret and yeah, Banana Cabaret and Up the Creek and yeah. Comedy Store and all those places and Ninety Nine Clubs. Yeah, so I tend that tends to be my most of my times rotation. Yeah. And every now and again, I'll nip out to like a Glasgow Glee or a, like next yeah. week I'm at the Birmingham Glee and yeah. But I'm always yeah. around Melbourne Comedy Festival. I'm probably yeah. going to be doing again next year. And there'll be listings on like Chortle and what have you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. put the links to your socials in the show notes. So finally, can you tell me then what for you is comedy in a nutshell? I just think it's anyone doing something to make you laugh. And <laughs> uh, I, yeah, anything. I do, I do think, I think anything is comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think the yeah the down the danger is overanalyzing it, which I know is ironic when we just sat talking for like <laughs> almost an hour about it. But um, I think too many people want to like analyze why they're laughing at something rather than just laughing. Mm. Like I watched the funniest thing I've seen this week, uh, and, and this isn't a sort of I, I know I've like I've worked with a brilliant comedians last night and I laughed throughout all their sets. But the thing that made me laugh the most this week, like almost uncontrollably was I watched a video of Leslie Nielsen, um, the actor, mm. doing an interview and he had a fart machine in his yeah. hand. <laughs> and it's just he, every time he goes to answer a question he just does a fart noise and like it, it made it just it's so funny and it's so childish and you know, some people would <laughs> think it's vulgar and not funny. And it's like that is just forget put all that to one side and just realise that is a a man in his sixties with a fart yeah. machine. That yeah. everything about that is funny to me. Yeah. So yeah, I just think that's it. It's that. It's just um, I find I think for me, comedy is just being silly constantly, uh, every right. day. To not you know, to there's no point in taking all any of this seriously. So let's just <laughs> laugh about everything. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Cheers, man. It's been nice.